Wow, amen. Praise God for those who led us in worship this morning. I'm full already, amen? Amen. Just thinking about God and how amazing he is. Ah, Minister Bishop said, even when we're faithless, amen? He is faithful. (laughs) And what a great truth to think about. What a great truth to think about. And I pray that this year so far you have been doing your best to put the spotlight on God, to put it on Jesus, even in the midst of our situations, to refocus our attention on that which is honorable, that which is lovely, uh, that which is commendable, that which is pure, that which is good, to think about these things. And that's what we want to continue to do uh, this morning in worship, as we're going to continue our series on the Trinity. Uh, The Trinity, a word coined by a guy by the name of Tertullian, which simply means uh, two words, came from two words that was combined, tri-unity, which explains the Godhead, which explains God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this doctrine, which is a Christian doctrine, this doctrine which we believe, this great mystery that we've been exploring for the last two weeks. And in part one of the series, we began to, to think about Uh, what the Bible says about it, and we did an overview of all that Scripture has to say about this God that we worship. And we learned three affirmations. Three affirmations. Affirmation number one. Say it. There is one God. Amen. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4. Affirmation number two. God is three persons. Amen. Affirmation number three. Each person is fully God. It means that each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each share the same essence, the same nature, the same DNA as the other. What a beautiful truth. In part two, we looked at how, and this is the picture that we've been looking at, how the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but they're distinct persons. The Son is not the Father. He's a different person that shares the same essence and nature. The Father is not the Spirit. The Father is a different person. But they share the same nature and essence. The Spirit is not the Son, nor is it the Father, but they share the same essence and nature. This is a small picture that we try to look at to to try to help us to kind of, in a small, minute, tiny way, wrap our um, fallible minds around this infallible and beautiful truth. Amen? Um, So that's part one. Part two, we looked at how how we're created in God's image. Book of Genesis tells us that we are created in God's image, and that means a whole lot. And I'm not smart enough to understand all that that it means, but but part of what what I believe it means and what uh, church historians and, and, and Bible teachers have taught that it's meant for a very long time, part of that is that we were created to be relational. So God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity's past has been in a relationship with each other. Before the world was created, before there was angels, there was God. And they were in perfect communion, loving each other. That's why 1 John says God is love. And we we believe that when we look at the Trinity and how God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relates to each other, loves each other, communes together, how there's never been any beef between them, how they're always in sync with each other, always dancing in in sync, 
We believe that as we put our eyes on this amazing God, and as we focus on what God has done for us through Christ, by way of his spirit, allowing us to believe, and when we put our focus on that, that we can relate to each other in the same way. That we can be a church, a community, that is filled with love, care, and compassion. A community that will have beasts, but that quickly repent and love each other and forgive. What a wonderful picture. So we looked at how we're relational beings and how all of our relationships, our marriage, our, our church, our friendships, all model after this God. So now what we want to do is we want to we want to zero in, and we want to look at these three persons. We want to look at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we want to, we want to pay attention to each person uh, for a couple of weeks. And we're going to start today by looking at the amazing Father. We're going to zero in on the Father. This summer, I had the joy to go to Michigan and visit uh, for, for a few days and, and take care of some business, and while I was there, the I stayed with a good friend of mine who I was really close to in college, he and his family. And one of the days in the afternoon, uh, we went to a, a family uh, park together. Uh, it was kind of like a, a forest preserve, and, and the park sat right on a lake. It was beautiful. I mean, it was postcard worthy. Um, we gathered together with some of his friends. One of his friends was celebrating a, a birthday. They had hot dogs. I'm about to make y'all hungry in the morning, I know. And ribs and potato salad. Okay, all right. They had some food, and it was showing up good, right? Um, and then about halfway through our time there and our fellowship, uh, my partner says, hey, uh, do you want to go on a lake and, and, and get on a rowboat? And I was like, uh... <laughs> I was like, you know, sure, I've never been rowing before, uh, but under two conditions. Number one, um, I'm not required to do anything. Number two, the person that's rowing is experienced. He said, sure, man, I grew up rowing. I know what I'm doing, right? So we go and we rent some rowboats and uh, we're getting in. I'm with a group of people and he's with his family and they kind of quickly get in the rowboat. And I'm thinking to myself, why is him, him and his family in his rowboat? And, uh, and he told me he was experienced. Why isn't he with me? And before I knew it, I'm trying to get on my life jacket because I can only survive in, in water in a shallow end about three feet, you know. Um, I'm trying to get ready, and I'm like, what is he doing? So he gets in with his family, and they just start rowing. And I get in with the group, and I got my little life jacket on, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, who here knows how to row? Who's going to lead? And they all look at me like, I don't know how to row. And I'm like, none of you know how to row? And I look at him like, hey, Steve. And he kind of laughs. And he's like, man, just row. You'll get the hang of it. So I'm there with mostly women and, and, uh, and another guy. And I, I just started trying to row. And it was tough, man. <laughs> it did not look like how it looks on TV, you know. <laughs> I was struggling. And, and I, I kind of got into a groove. And we started to get out in the water. Um, and I began to get tired real tired. I'm like, man, how are we going to get back, you know? <laughs> and then he and, and his family, they're just out having a good time, you know, eating sandwiches and enjoying themselves. And suddenly I see uh, one of the guys who was on the boat. I, I didn't know him. First time meeting with him. I said, hey, man, you mind stepping in and rowing for a little bit? And he kind of reluctantly looked at, looked at me and he was like, sure, I'll row. I'll row. And he gets and we swap and we kind of just doing this. And he begins to row and he's struggling too, like me. But all of a sudden, it seems like the Lord just gave him grace, and he just was in stride. 
and you would have thought he had grown up growing. And he gets us back to the dock after a little struggle of trying to actually get into the dock. We get off the boat, we return everything that we got, and about 10 minutes later, I see a football laying on the floor, and I call his name, I say, hey, and I threw the football to him, and he caught it. And all of a sudden, a big grin comes on his face, and he smiles. And I'm like, all right, this is a time where you throw it back, and we begin to play catch. But he didn't throw it back. Instead, he put the football down on the ground, and he ran and began to talk to this lady that he knew. And he's just exuberant and smiling and laughing. So after the conversation, I go up to him. I was like, hey, man, what? that was kind of weird, you know? <laughs> we was playing catch. You caught the ball, and, and you began to celebrate like it was a real touchdown, you know? And he says, yeah, man, the Lord is really doing something unique today in my heart. He was like, Jamal, I grew up fatherless. I didn't, I didn't know my father. And I have some deep, deep wounds from not knowing my father. And all the time when I was growing up in school, it was always an awkward moment when someone would yell, hey, man, catch, because I couldn't catch, and I didn't know how to catch. And when I was younger, I would get made fun of the way I called and the way I shot a basketball. So I just stopped doing things that, anything that was athletic, I just stopped doing. And, and I, I would just shun, uh, shun, shun myself away from it. And he said, but I've been reading the Bible about how God fathers us. And I've been reading a book about how to get over the father wound. And one of the things it says is it says, look at the areas of your life where you're hurting it and seek restoration in that and trust God in it. And one of the areas that I know nothing about is sports and, and athletics. And I've been praying, God, give me opportunities to be athletic. And today when you called me from the back of that boat to row, everything in me shouted no. But I know that this was a prayer that I had been answered. And then when you threw the football to me and I actually caught it, I couldn't help but to celebrate the goodness of God and seeing that God cares about me and loves me so much. For the next few minutes, we begin to talk about what it was like for him to grow up without knowing his dad and what the struggles was like. But, but we also talked about how God had begun to redeem that area of his life not by giving him necessarily a new father, but by showing him how he could father and how he loves him. You know, many people in here are just like that. You're perhaps living with a deep, deep father wound. Deep father wound. And that shows itself and has shown itself throughout your history and throughout your life in different ways. Some of you, you just kind of suppress it. You don't talk about it. You don't think about it. Others of you, you express it in different ways, sometimes ways that's not healthy. And today we want to look at God the Father, and we want to see what Scripture says about who God the Father is, but also how God the Father can heal any father wound that we have, and also ways that we can begin to really connect and commune with them. In 1960, statistics show that 11% of children were missing their biological fathers in the home. And since 1960, today, statistics show that that number is anywhere between 37% and 45% of children don't have a relationship with their biological home. While I was in Lansing, Michigan, I remember I had an opportunity to, to work with a fraternity there, and, and we got to go into schools and talk to young boys about different issues. 
And they brought together one day uh, at a high school, most, most of the boys who constantly were getting uh, kicked out of school and, 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 and suspended and who was having a hard time, and they, they asked me and gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with these boys and to talk with them. And I asked them a question. I said, how many of you have a, a father at home or a male figure that you can look up to? Only about 5% of a room of 60 boys raised their hand. 95% of those boys in that room didn't have a father. And that, that, supports, uh, that supports what statistics and what Scripture shows. As, it, as Scripture talks about the importance of a father, and statistics shows how, how important a father is. They, they estimate that 24.7 million American children live in a fatherless home. And that three out of every four adolescent children who commit suicide came from a fatherless home. 90% of runaways and homeless children come from a fatherless home. 85% of all youth in group homes and in prison come from fatherless homes. 75% of, of youth in rehab or some kind of chemical treatment center comes from fatherless homes. In fact, John Hopkins, uh, that great medical center, did some research. And they weren't looking to find the statistic, but it just came out. They did an extensive study that ranged for over 30 years. And they looked at what was the number one thing that people who had heart attacks and heart issues had in common. And you know what it was? Is that they all were deeply bothered by not growing up knowing their father. That's not focus on the family doing that study. That's John Hopkins. When they looked at heart-related issues and stress, the most common thread was fatherlessness. Now, I'm not trying to throw B. Debbie down and, and throw this out here so we can look at ourselves and say, well, it's me. And, and even if you grew up fatherless or even if you're, you're mothering a child right now and who, who doesn't know his father, this isn't, this isn't meant to, to bring you down or to make us feel like victims because through the gospel and through God, I believe that we can be redeemed. But this is to let us know the, the importance of fathers. Now, some of us, when we hear the word father, and even when we talk about God the Father, we're just so disconnected from that term. And we really can't connect. When we, even when we pray, our father, that, that, really isn't a, that, that really isn't that moment where it's like, man, I'm really talking to my dad. I'm really talking to someone who cares about me. I'm really talking to someone who, who has a deep affection for me because to us, a father is someone who is unreliable or undependable. A father is someone who, who didn't check in on us, who, who didn't teach us to, to ride our bicycle or, or to catch a ball or to shoot a basketball or, or who didn't teach us how our, our bodies worked or, or who didn't protect our moms. So when we hear that word father and we talk about the Trinity, even though we kind of understand what that means, we, we don't pause with deep reverence and deep love and deep respect and a deep understanding of, of what it means to be loved by a dad. So today we want to redeem that word by looking at what, what a true father looks like by putting the attention on our heavenly father. The scripture, scripture knows that, that people are going to be born into fatherlessness or, or grow up fatherless because we live in a fallen and a broken world and we live with, with messed up people and we have sin issues and tendencies and proclivities that oftentimes draw fathers away from the home. And oftentimes have them running away from responsibility. 
Or we live in a fallen or broken world where, where dads pass away and dads die. Jesus' biological father probably died when he was an early teen. So he can sympathize with us even in our weakness. Some of you grew up in a home where your father was physically present, but spiritually and emotionally absent. And when I say the word father, you, you, you kind of want to cuss. Because even though he was physically there, he, he didn't love you, he didn't talk to you, you can't tell, you couldn't tell me really five good things about him just because he, he checked out. He checked out. The result is brokenness, the result is, is bad health, the result is sometimes same-sex attraction, the result is suppression, the result is guilt and anger. But we have an opportunity to overcome those things by looking to our Father in heaven. Psalm 68 and 5 says that, that God is a, is a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. And I can take you to a number of psalms and a number of proverbs which all allude and point to that, that, that God the Father, he says, I am a father to the fatherless. What does that mean? That means something. And that's what we want to explore. What does that mean? We want to pray that today in our ears that term will be redeemed. And we also want to pray that we could marvel at the Father and draw near to him. So how are we going uh, to do that. You know, I was thinking about this, this issue and, and zooming in on each, each character and praying hard, like, Lord, how do you want uh, me to represent you? You've already represented yourself clear in Scripture. How do you want to, to organize this for your people? And at first I was thinking about doing something topical where we just look at different qualities of God and we just do an overview and trace that through Scripture. But as I began to pray about that, uh, the Lord's Prayer came to mind. I just began to think about Jesus and how he called God the Father, Father, because that is his Father for all eternity. And I begin to think about that Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we see the character of God the Father revealed. We also see how God the Father relates to his Son, Jesus. And we see his heart exposed. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks, Lord willing, is we're just going to look at God the Father by looking at how Jesus related to him in the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to zoom in on that and we're going to see how God the Father fathers us and what he cares about the most. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we're going to look at this amazing father, by looking at this amazing father, I believe that he will begin to father our hearts and heal our deep wounds. Matthew chapter 6, verse 3. Let me give you, give you some, a context uh, for, for what's happening. Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, a very famous passage, Matthew 5 through 7. I want to encourage you, if you've never read Matthew 5 through 7 and you're wondering, Lord, what should I read? Um, I don't know what to study. Study those two chapters. Amazing, amazing chapters. Okay? Um, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to talk about prayer. And he's talking, and he's begin, he, just began, he just got over talking to the, to the disciples about how the Gentiles pray. Um, and, he's, and he's telling them, don't, don't pray like that. Um, they just pray with these long phrases, and they say meaningless words, and they pray to be seen. He's saying, don't pray like that. Um, here's how you pray. 
and he begins to break down his prayer. And we've, we've taught on this uh, a few times since I've been here in the last three years, so we're not going to necessarily focus on this prayer or focus on all the dynamics, just some major things that we can learn about the character and the heart of God the Father. And the word says, pray then like this, or when you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We'll stop right there. So we see, again, he's on the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, the disciples, love his prayer life. They were Jews. Jews had good prayer lives. They were systematically taught to pray. They had chants that they would pray. They were in tune with prayer. But it was something about the way that Jesus prayed throughout the Gospels that always drew the disciples to want to know how to pray. So in Luke's context, we see that the disciples actually asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the reason why is because when Jesus prayed, he wasn't just talking to some uh, philosophical idea. Like some of us, when we talk about God the Father, it's like, yeah, he's kind of out there. He's an idea. Like he was connecting with a person. And the Bible says throughout Luke that he was often losing himself while connecting with the Father. He would pray and he would be with the Father all night. He would wake up early to talk to the Father. Why? Because he had a deep relationship with him that had been going on for eternity's past. But it's something about the way that Jesus prayed and the way that Jesus talked to the Father that drew the disciples in. And Jesus is about to teach them what the Father's priorities are. He's about to reveal to them what the Father's heart is and what his will is and what his character is. And we see him starting off by saying, our Father in heaven. The first thing we want to look at today, and we're not going to look at this whole passage, we're only going to look at the first two verses, and we'll pick up the rest in the weeks to come. The first thing we want to look at is we want to see God the Father as the supreme leader, the supreme leader of the universe. He says, "My our Father who art in heaven, in other words, who, who rules over the heavens. Now, as we think about the Trinity and we talk about the Trinity, we want to understand that each member in the Godhead is equal in essence, in nature. But they have different roles and they relate to each other differently. So just because we have different roles in the church or at home or whatever, it doesn't mean that we're equal. We're all equal in the sight of God. But God gives us different gifts and capacities in which to serve him. Well, the same is true with God the Father. For all eternity, God the Father has been the leader of the Trinity. And God the Son, as a, as a son does, submits to the Father. So throughout Scripture, when we think about God the Father, when we say Father, we are saying supreme leader of the universe, supreme leader of the world, the one who controls everything. Let's go to Psalm 2. Put that on the screen, my brother, if we have it. <laughs> Psalm chapter 2. We see this. We're going to look at some verses just to establish this point really quick. And this is what it says. 
Psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He, speaking of God the Father, who sits in the heavens, laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's saying, why does the nations, why do people in the earth beef against me? Why won't they submit to me? Why are they going their own way? Why are they enraged against me? Why do they counsel together and say that there is no God? And say that, that evolution started everything. And God responds, and he says, the Bible says that God laughs in heaven. He's looking at us, and he's laughing. It's kind of like Kobe Bryant being challenged by a first grader. And the first grader's like, yo, I'll play you for a million dollars. And Kobe's rolling, like, there's no way you're going to beat me, right? That's what God the Father does when he looks at us. But look at what he does. As the supreme ruler of the universe, the supreme Ruler of the world, verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And who is his king? It's the son. It's Jesus. So God is the supreme leader. Jesus is his son. Jesus obeys the father. And we see this in the Gospels. Ephesians, uh, throughout the, the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, shows us that God is the supreme leader. God is the supreme ruler. Look at what it says. It says, "Be blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God and Father, the leader of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we see that God is the supreme leader of the universe, Psalm 2. We see that he's the leader of Jesus. He's the Father of Jesus. Sometimes we don't think about that order within the, within the Trinity. Philippians chapter 2, very, very familiar passage that we quote oftentimes. And, and, and a very good Sunday school scripture. If you're in Sunday school long enough, you, you're going to hear it and know it. And it says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? But a lot of times we stop there. But that's not where it ends. To the glory of God the Father. God the Father is the leader of the world. He is the supreme ruler, the supreme leader. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, our last verse here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So when Jesus comes and he's praying to God the Father, he is praying as a, as a son, he's praying as a subject, he is praying with a deep reverence and respect for the Father because he's supreme leader. And God the Father, when we come to faith through Jesus, he becomes our supreme leader. He becomes our supreme ruler. But some of us, when we pray to God the Father, we, we don't go to him with a deep respect and, and a deep homage because 
that the word father really throws us off. Because maybe our father threw around the fact that he was the leader of our homes, or maybe he led poorly. Maybe he led with an iron fist. Maybe he led in a cold and distant and irresponsible way. Maybe he gambled away, or, or maybe he had an addiction that really put the family in a hole. But not only is God the father, the supreme leader of the universe, but we want to understand that God the father is not like our natural father. God the Father is not distant and cold. He is very near. And he wants to hear from us. He wants to commune with us. That's why Jesus did not say if you pray, but he said when you pray. And that's why Jesus, even throughout his ministry and ministering to others, he would just stop in the middle of ministering sometimes and pray. Because he knew that his Father was near and that his Father heard him. God the Father is not standing, he's stingy, he's not selfish, he's not unreliable. And Jesus is saying God the Father deserves to be respected, and he loved him. Why did Jesus love God the Father? Because God the Father was so amazing. His relation with God the Father for all eternity was so spectacular that he wanted everyone to know it. And he had a deep reverence and a deep respect for him. That's what we see in this text. In Matthew, he goes on, and look how he, he look at he, what he prays. His, his first request, his first petition in his prayer is something that I don't pray enough of. But it reveals the character of God the Father. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. His first petition is, hallow be your name. To hallow means to reverence or to set apart. The name. The name. You know, Jews, in, in theory, when God first revealed himself to them, they had a deep respect for the name of God. In the Old Testament, when God revealed himself, one of the ways that he revealed himself is as the self-existent one or as God. That's what we mean when God, the one who is self-existent and perfect. And he revealed himself to Moses as Jehovah. I am that I am, the self-existent one. That's what Jehovah means. Well, the Jews begin to have such a deep respect for God the Father because of his character as he was delivering them out that they refused to, to say the name Jehovah. So instead of saying the name Jehovah, they would begin to refer to God as that name. Jehovah, the name of God just simply represented his character. So if people, when God revealed himself to, to Israel in different ways, he was just giving himself all kind of names and nicknames so that they could know that he shows up in all kind of different ways. Jehovah, Ralpha, which means God, my healer. Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord, my banner. God, my banner, the self-existent one who fights my battle for me. Jehovah Tiskanu. God, who is my righteousness. And the list can go on and on. So what they begin to do is instead of referring to God as Jehovah, they will refer to him as that name. So what is Jesus saying as he's praying about the Father and why does it matter? Jesus is saying, Lord, above everything, my Father, I want your name to be reverenced and hallowed and deeply respected throughout the earth. I want your character to be on display. I want your fame to spread throughout the nations. That shows us that he, Jesus, 
respects his father deeply, that he loves his father deeply, so deep that he thinks that everyone should be able to see God the Father in the way that he has seen him for all eternity. God is not like your dad. And you may say, well, my father was wonderful. Guess what? He's still not like your father. Because your father pales in comparison to God. Your father has been late on occasion. God has never been late. Your father has changed his mind in times and, and made promises that he could not keep. But God the Father never makes a promise that he cannot keep. And Jesus is saying, Lord, I want the world to know this, that you are immutable. You are unchanging. You know, <laughs> all of us who have, have parents or even guardians growing up, right, who knew our parents or guardians, uh, we all had that one thing that made us uncomfortable about them, that we didn't want our friends to know. And maybe it wasn't about their character. Maybe it was about the way they dressed, right? Or maybe it was an outfit that they had that they wore around the house, and you thought, you better not show up in my school with that on, right? <laughs> you know, my father, and he knows it, um, he had a, a specific hairdo that was really popular in the 80s. And he was still rocking it in the mid-90s. And it went out, out of style in the early 90s, right? And I remember uh, being in the eighth grade, and one day at lunch, everybody was talking about people who still had this hairstyle. And I began to think, oh, my goodness. My father's still rocking that, right? <laughs> so I went home. I'm like, Dad, yo, <laughs> when you come and pick me up, you've got to have a hat on. Or you've got to let this hairstyle go, <laughs> right? Because there's something about all of us that we don't want other people to know. and Something about our fathers or our parents that we, we, we want to hide from people. Jesus says, there's nothing about my father that I want to hide. I want him to be showed off and exalted. But here's what's amazing. God is the supreme leader of the universe whose son is perfect and deeply loves him and who wants him to be showed off. And this, this great, perfect father loves us in the same way that he loved his son. Romans chapter 8 says that God, the father, adopts us into his family, and we become children of God. And through the spirit of God, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic uh, word that means pretty much daddy dearest. Jesus uses the same word in the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't just say father. This word in Aramaic means dearest daddy. Daddy. Now it's a little different than the word we use for daddy. Because it not only means daddy, but it means daddy. It was a word that was used when you had a deep respect for your father. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says that the Spirit comes into our heart. He, he, he regenerates our heart. He gives us saving faith. And now we're part of a new family. We become sons and daughters of God the Father. And that's not some, some metaphoric thing. That's literal. You have a father. You have a leader. You have someone who has adopted you into his family, you are no longer fatherless. 
And just like my friend in the introduction, the Bible teaches us that when we cry out to God the Father, that, that God the Father will father us. And he will begin to teach us things that maybe our natural fathers didn't teach us. And love us in ways that our natural father couldn't love us, no matter how great he is. Listen to how much he loves us. And we, we, read, we sung this song this morning. Romans chapter 8. How, how, how much does he love us? This is just incredible. Verse 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, we have, some of us, we have just such a a distant and wrong view of God. We think that God is just sitting in heaven for those of us who, who have made a profession of faith and he's just angry with us all the time. He's always dissatisfied. The day that you misreading your Bible or the week that you don't get into your word, he's mad. And when something bad happens, it's because we did something wrong. I had that view of God in college. I remember I began to have car problems, and I swore it was because I was not reading my Bible. I swore that God was upset with me. Got a flat, I'm like, man, I knew I should have read the word this morning. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when God adopts us into his family that he has such a passionate love for us, such a deep abiding love for us, and that he sets his affections on us and everything that he does in our life and that he allows in our lives ultimately is working to make us look more like Jesus. So what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this is the supreme leader of the universe who Jesus was praying to. How will he not give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is praying for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall our tribulations, shall our trials, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded to sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure of this that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things past nor uh, nor, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the Bible. He says nothing. Yesterday's sin, if you are a believer and you have put your life in Jesus' hands, if you have turned from a life that is committed to pleasing yourself, And if you have looked to Jesus as your treasure and you say, Lord, I'm yours, he says, your past sin cannot separate you. Last night cannot separate you. This morning's argument cannot separate you. Your character flaws cannot separate you. And I will give you all things, not not, not the house, not the mansion, what is all, all things that make you look more like Jesus. But when Jesus is praying to God the Father, he's praying to one who he knows deeply loves him, 
and who is Lord over the heavens. And when we approach God the Father, we approach one who is Lord over the heavens and who loves us with the same intensity that he loves Jesus. Not because of our works or our merit, but because of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You know, all of us have daydreamed at some point in time, even Deacon Pollock, about what it would be like to be born in a rich family. And what would it have been like to be born a billionaire, right? What would it be like to win the lottery? Y'all had those conversations. Sitting there with your wife. Your friend, if you won $2 million, what would you do with it? And then we start lying. Well, if I won $2 million, I'd give a million to the church. <laughs> like when we understand that we have been blessed by God in heaven with all spiritual riches, that we are born with a father who is the supplier and who will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory, we can walk with more swag than Paris Hilton, than Kim Kardashian, or whoever other person. <laughs> we can walk with that humble boldness that I may not have it right now in my pocket, in my bank account, but I know before I starve to death that it's going to be there and that God's going to provide because he's my father and he rules over heaven. He is the supreme leader. In 2001, Michael Jackson went to Oxford University and uh, he gave a speech to the students of Oxford. And you can go on Google or YouTube it and you can see the speech. It's a quite a very interesting speech. But halfway through, he just brought up his dad and he just began to weep and to cry. He said, all I ever wanted was for my father to tell me that he loved me. And I wanted to hear him say that without him bringing up my performance on stage. Some of our fathers, earthly fathers, is like Joe Jackson. Maybe he led with an iron fist or set high expectations or provoked us to wrath. God the Father is not like that. His love for you is not based on your performance. Last point, turning back to Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. Our Father in heaven, make your name great in all the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus continues to petition and he continues to pray. And he says, let your will be done. What is, what is the will of God? Let your divine purpose be done. Let your divine purpose manifest itself on earth as it already is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. This is the kingdom of God. It is the reign and rule of God. It is to be under his care. Let your kingdom manifest itself here on earth. God the Father is not only our supreme leader. God the Father is a perfect visionary. He is a perfect planner. When Jesus talks about God, the Father, throughout the scripture, he is constantly bringing up his divine purpose. He's constantly bringing up his kingdom, his reign and rule on earth. 
because he wants people to know that God has a plan. God has a vision for the world. In the book of Revelations, we see this plan. We see this, this book. If you don't have hope and you find yourself hopeless, just go read Revelations 19 through 21. You'll see that God has a plan. In Revelations, it talks about how the heavens will, how heaven will collide with earth and how one day we will live in a new earth as heaven will be on earth. And there will be righteousness, peace, and joy all the day long, and God the Father will rule. That is his attention for the world, to make all things right, to restore this universe, to restore this world. He has a vision. But not only does he have a, a world vision, but he has a vision for you. He has a vision for me. When he saved us, he set us apart from the world. He transformed us into a different kingdom, into his kingdom. And he begins to, to work on us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that he begins to work on us to, to not be conformed to the image of this world, to not look like this world, to not love darkness like this world, to be, be conformed, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He has a will and purpose from you, and that is to, for you to look more like Jesus and less like the world. For you not to be conformed to the world, but to be conformed, to be made to the image of Christ. God, the Father, your Father cares about every detail of your life. Some of you have given up on changing. You have given up on growing. You have given up on improving. You think that this is how life is always going to be. You have adapted and accepted certain sins and, and patterns in your life. And you're saying, well, I'm too old, I'm not going to change, or, or this, is, this is what life is all about, and this is what it means to be a Christian. Whatever is in your mind for what it means to be holy and be a Christian, I want you to think even higher, because it's higher than that. And God can change you, he can conform you, it's his will. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. What is the will of God? What is the divine purpose of God? He said it is your sanctification. What is sanctification? Big word, sounds painful. It is your change. God's will is for you and me to change. As we look to Jesus to look less like ourselves, he has a vision for you. He has a plan for you. He has saved you not just to get by and die and go to heaven. He has saved you in order that you can be ministers of the gospel and bring other people to him. He has saved you so that you can set up shop one foot from hell and rescue sinners. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Get there, say, got it. Haven't helped everybody there, amen. It says, for we are his workmanship. Some translation says that we are his masterpieces. Wow! When God the Father adopts us into his family, he sees us as his masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are good works? Good works are spirit-empowered or spirit-enabled deeds. That, that point to God. He has created us as his, his, his masterpieces in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
God the Father has a plan for your life. And I don't care what your earthly father has done. I don't care what lies you believe. I didn't get the best education or I didn't grow up in the best family. If I just grew up on this side of the tracks, I'll be better. Or I don't know this, I don't know that. God says, you don't understand. I am making a masterpiece out of you. And I can do things with your life that you have never imagined, that you have never thought of. I can use you in ways that eyes have not seen. Do you believe that? The Bible uses another analogy, and Jeremiah says that he is the potter and we are the clay. A potter is very intimate with that piece. It's molding and forming, and every little dot, every little thing that's unsmooth, he smooths it out. That's how God cares about you. That's your father. God, the father, is not distant. He's a visionary. He's close. Some of us, we can't imagine that because our fathers weren't visionaries. Our father didn't have a plan for our family. And part of being a father, part of being a dad is having a plan for your kids. Right? Our fathers didn't care about our schoolwork. They just wanted us to pass. Hey, get a C, you're all right. A D, you still pass. Fathers talked down to us. They called us dumb. They called us stupid. God the Father is not that way. God cares deeply about you. And he wants you to see him as, 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 his, as your father. You know, studies show that the average father in America spends 40 minutes a week with their child in, a, in an intimate way. It's 40 minutes a week of, of valuable time. Some of us, we grew up, it was way less than that. Jesus is showing us that we, we have access to God the Father every day of the week, every minute of the day. And we can spend valuable time with the one who loves us perfectly. Whenever we set our affections and our eyes on him. So, for those who have a deep father wound, it may be because your father was really evil and really distant. You may say, Pastor Jamal, you just don't know my dad. He was just the most evil or distant person in the world, and that may be true. For, for, for many of us, maybe that, that's not the case. Maybe our father wasn't in our lives because his father wasn't in his life. Because he never had someone to show him what a true father is. And I just want to encourage you today, if that's you, rather than walking out of here just, just mad and angry and bitter at your dad, I want you to look to God the Father. And I also want you to remember to give your father grace. Hebrews chapter 12 says something very peculiar, chapter 12, verse 10, when speaking about God the Father and how he disciplines and how he loves us, it says, "For speaking of earthly fathers here, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see, did you catch that? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. And there's some fathers in here who, maybe in hearing this sermon, you're like, man, I, I need to be a better father. And I want to encourage you and say, we all do. We're, we're all imperfect. 
And we all can really mess up our kids. The message I want you to see today is that you just need to look to God the Father. And you need to look to Christ. And you need to trust and believe that that God can help you to even redeem those years. And rather than looking at and doing things as best seems best to you, that you can look to the Father and see what he expects and do your best to model that. And when you fall, look to his grace. God the Father loves you deeply. He is your Father who is in heaven, and he has a will, he has a divine purpose for the world and for you, and he loves you deeply. Some of you really, really don't believe. living this Christian life in agony and pain, constantly searching for acceptance from others because you really don't believe that you've been fully accepted by the one who loves you most. Some of you in here, you're just holding on to to a sin, holding on to some mess in your life, and you don't really believe that God the Father forgives you. I want to let you know that he does. I'll close with this story. There's a young boy who Grew up outside of New York in a rural area. Grew up rather wealthy on his father's farm. Father had an acres, a lot of land, had a lot of trees. And he got fed up with his father and he ran away. Thought his father was too strict. Thought his father didn't care about him. And for the next few years of his life, he just did whatever he wanted to do. Tried to find pleasure in everything. Found himself strung out on drugs, on heroin found himself at the lowest of lows doing things that he never thought that he would do, made a wreck of his life, caught all kind of diseases, wanted to die but didn't know how to kill himself. He was too poor to do so. Gets a hold of a letter, begs someone for some money. He sends uh, a letter to his father. He says, Dad, I'm coming home. I want to come back home. I know that we haven't spoken in years, and I know that there's a big gulf in between our relationship, but, Dad, I've made a ruin of my life, and I don't know what to do. Will you accept me back? I'm going to get on a train, and the train is going to pass by uh, our home on this date and at this time. And if you want me back, if you will forgive me, if you're willing to take me back in your house, all I want you to do is take a big white sheet and put it over one tree. And then I'll get off at the next stop, and I'll, I'll run back home, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. The story is told that this son got on that train, and he was weeping the whole ride back home. He's in tears, and the older guy looked at him. He said, son, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And he, he explained to him what had happened and how he made a, a mess of his life and how he really wanted to die and deserved to die. And he said, I'm getting ready to pass by my father's farm. And I told my father, Father, if you still love me, if you still care for me, just just put one sheet on one tree. And I'm too afraid to look because I've been rejected, rightfully so, because of the way I live. But my father is the the only hope that I have to, to living again. The story is told that he asked the man to look out the window as they passed by. The man yelled, son, come here, hurry up, you've got to see this. And as he went to the window, he didn't see just one tree covered with a white sheet. 
saw every tree for miles and miles covered with white sheets. I don't care how low you are today. I don't care how deep your wound, your father wounded you. Today you can come home. The Bible says that if you do, if you return home, if you call out to God, that, that God will forgive you and cleanse you and that heaven will rejoice and throw a party. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we pray to you tonight, tomorrow, that we would pray to you as supreme leader and as the perfect visionary, the one who has a plan for the world and for our lives pray that we will have a deep respect for you, that we will come to know how deep your love is, and that we will share that love with the world. Pray as fathers that we this week would be conscious of the role that you've given us to lead our families, to be visionaries for our families. That you will help us to look at our households and see what your word says about our, how our homes should look that you will help us to look to you and begin to model those things at home. I pray for that father who hasn't spoke to his child in months or years or weeks. Maybe it's a child of another marriage or another relationship. I pray today that they would, that they would know you and that they would seek to reconcile with that child in order to show them what your love looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.